Take your Bibles and turn to Acts 9, 27 to 31 is what we're going to be looking at. That's going to be our passage of study today. We're continuing in our series, You Will Be My Witnesses. This would be the second installment of Saul in Jerusalem, uh, probably the last one too. We're going to be wrapping up this nice little section here. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to take a little bit of a break from Acts and, and we're going to have a special Christmas um, gathering next week and I'll, I'll preach um, why Jesus came. I think there's a lot of confusion about that, um, obviously in the world, but even in the church. You see all these banners and things out there that he came to give purpose and all of these things and all of these things are true, but they tend to only appeal to those who are looking for purpose. <laughs> they tend, you know, we, 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 we proclaim all of the little blessing things that Christ gives us and brings to us instead of the true thing, and that is deliverance from sin, which is really the starting point. And so we're going to talk about that next week. I'm excited. And then after that, we've got some other things planned. So we're going to take just a little bit of time away from Acts. But it's important that we do so. And today we will be studying Acts 9, 27 to 31. And uh, two weeks ago, we camped out on 26, 9, 26. We learned that after being saved and engaged in gospel ministry for three years, Saul returned to Jerusalem, and he attempted or tried to join the church there, but he was rejected because the Jerusalem Christians did not believe that he was a true Christian. They had this fear. Obviously, they were reflecting upon who he had been and the persecution that this man had brought to the church, and so they had a great difficulty with receiving him and, and believing his words and his testimony. I think that they probably thought that he was a wolf in sheep's clothing, basically, that he was attempting to gain access uh, into the church so that he could destroy it from within, which Satan attempts to do all the time through men and women and people and false teachers and, and wolves. And so I think that that's what they were thinking about him. This guy can't be legit. He can't be true. I mean, look at what he had done. And so obviously this is his way of trying to get to the inside. And so I think that that might have been what they entertained and thought about. Um, we know that Saul had a, this is a shameless eagle's plug, but he had a nasty reputation as a cruel dude. And so it makes total sense that they would treat him this way. He was an incredible persecutor of the church. The first real one, if you look at church history, it really began with Saul. And then you had all these other characters that have come down the pike that just truly... Uh, persecuted the church, and so he had a really bad reputation as a cruel dude. He was a bad guy, um, but we must take into consideration that uh, the, these things and this persecution and who he was, all of this took place three years prior to the time that he went into Jerusalem and tried to join the church. Saul was now a changed man, and many, many people uh, were very much aware of the fact that he was changed and transformed, um, you know. So it was three years, and many, many people knew it. Now, these people uh, that knew that Saul was different, most particularly in the Damascus region, they had witnessed how Saul had turned from persecution of the gospel to a literal proclamation of the gospel. He was a persecutor, and then he became a proclaimer. You know, it's just like antithesis, complete opposite. And so many people had seen that. Now, I believe that the Jerusalem Christians, I think the evidence is there in Scripture, that they had been informed of these changes in Saul, that they, had, uh, they were aware that he was uh, somewhat of a different guy. Um, but 
those past experiences uh, that they had with him kept them in a state of fear. In other words, they were afraid of what Saul could do to them or potentially do to them. And one man, however, one man decided to take a chance on Saul. Um, his name was Barnabas. We were first introduced to Barnabas back in Acts 4, 36 to 37. It reads, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, parentheses, it says, which means son of encouragement, who was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is where we were first introduced to this Barnabas guy. His actual name was Joseph. Uh, but Barnabas technically means son of encouragement in Greek. And so he was this encouraging sort of fellow. He was uh, actually highly respected uh, by the apostles. He had um, proven himself as a genuine and authentic man of Christ, not by word alone, but by deed as well. The man sold things, he gave away his property and money, he provided for others. I mean, he really showed that he was a transformed guy, that he believed the truth of the gospel through his actions. Barnabas was generous, he was encouraging. Um, he was the type of guy that people took seriously. He was trustworthy, he had wisdom, he was compassionate, he was sincere. Uh, when he spoke, he meant what he said. In other words, his yes was yes and his no was no. He was that type of guy. He wasn't a wishy-washy type of guy because wishy-washy people do not make good encouragers. Uh, they're like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get with them. And this might seem horrible, but we all have them as friends. We all have friends that are wishy-washy. And this might sound terrible, but they're, we need them in our lives and they have, oh man, should I say this? They have an entertainment value to them, do they not? Because you just never know what's going to happen, you know? And you're watching them, I knew he was going to do this, or I knew he was going to do that. Why? Because he's got these patterns, or she's got these patterns of inconsistency and stuff. And so uh, I, I've had friends throughout my life that were very wishy-washy, and they just, there were times where they made me laugh, you know? I, this is just great. And there were times where it was like, Oh my gosh, really? Can you believe this? And so, but the bottom line is wishy-washy people, they're not good encouragers because whatever encouragement they give, they tend to contradict it very quickly. You know, they're all over the map. They're a divided type of soul. And this guy was absolutely not like that. He was solid. He was very, very, very solid. <clears throat> he was called the son of encouragement and which means that he wasn't a wishy-washy guy. He meant what he said and all of these wonderful things. This was a good dude. Barnabas was the kind of guy that, you know, we seek to have these types of Barnabas guys in our lives as friends because we need to be encouraged. You know, we need these types of people in our lives. I mean, ultimately, we're surrounded by wishy-washy people, and we tend to be that way at times. And we need a rock-solid, encouraging type of guy in our life like this or gal. And they're out there. Have you ever met one? They're the kind of people you want to spend a lot of time around. You just sense the presence of God in them, and, you know, and they're, just, they're just an encourager. I, I'm reminded of one over at Big Valley, John Byron. Uh, you know, if you get to know him at all, he is totally 
a Barnabas, just an encourager. You know, you could do the most blatant, stupid thing. And he would definitely let you know about it, but he'd do it in such a way where he'd be built up and not just, oh, gosh, I stink, you know. I need to just go do something. You know, he just has, there's just a way about him, and we need those types of folks in our lives. And this is who this guy was. He was a, he was a good, godly man. Now, let's read our main passage. We're going to learn more about him and about some other things, but let's read our main passage Pray and examine and apply it together. And as I said earlier, man, the goal is just to be encouraged in the Lord this morning. Um, life is hard. It's tough. Um, you know, minus all the things that are happening on the exterior, our own lives are tough and hard and working and trying to make ends meet and all of these things. You know, we really, really need to experience God today and to be touched by him and changed by him and to know that he loves us. So let's read it, pray, and examine it together. 9, 27 to 31. Phenomenal passage. Phenomenal. It says, But Barnabas took him, that's Saul, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had, procla- or he had preached, not proclaimed, preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, speaking of Saul again, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Verse 30, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. My last verse. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And then it says this, it multiplied. Father, as we come to your word, God, I pray that we would humble ourselves now. Lord, that we would recognize that you are our head and our authority figure here, Lord. Um, None of these folks in here are following Pastor Phil. If they are, we're in big trouble. They're seeking to hear from you today, to follow you, to love you in a deeper way, to obey you in a broader fashion, Lord, to be missional in this community, imparting your wondrous grace to others. That's why we've come, Lord. Equip us today, Lord. Encourage us. Build us up for your namesake, for your glory, to your honor, for your cause, for your kingdom, for the gospel. God, have your will done here today. Do that in our midst. Be with us. Speak to us. Transform us. Change us. I know that we're distracted. Lord, I've been wrestling with things all morning. God, put that aside. May we know that we are in your presence, and in your presence we are made whole. May we be made whole this morning, Lord, in you, secured in you, our value, identity, all in all, being in you, Christ Jesus, in your finished work. Speak to us here, Lord. May we enjoy your presence. Thank you for these people who have come today to hear from you. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, we're going to begin with 27. Focus on that one. Again, it says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. That's what it says. Now, Luke begins with 
But Barnabas, as I've said from time to time, whenever we come across these things, what we see here, the first thing we see is another point of contrast. Luke does this all the time. We're now becoming very, very accustomed to and familiar with his writing style. He loves to put these little nuggets of coolness out there, and he loves to contrast them with something else. He does this over and over and over. Now, Saul had been denied acceptance into the fellowship at Jerusalem because they feared him. And then Luke writes, but Barnabas. It's as if Luke is saying one man did something different. One man stepped up. Now, who else was present here when these things happened? Okay? Let's set the stage a little bit here. Who was present when this thing played out, when Saul was denied and rejected? Who was present here? Well, we know that there were regular believers there in the church. Um, Not all the Christians in Jerusalem scattered and left years prior when the persecution broke out. Many did. I would say the vast majority of them did leave and and went into Samaria and other parts of Judea and even probably Damascus and and in other places, probably uh, Syrian Antioch. They scattered. They went all over the place. But there was a contingency of them that stayed and remained behind. They were there. So there were regular Christians there. There's no doubt about that. Not all of them left. Men like Barnabas stayed behind. We see that. He's there. He's present. He was a good guy. We saw him back in, you know, Acts 2 and, and in these other, or did we see him in Acts 2? Was that where he sold us? Probably no, it was in Acts 4. I just read it. We saw him back then. He was present in the Jerusalem church then. Well, he remained after it scattered. He did not go. Now, who else was there? The apostles were present. I'd say the 12 of them were present. They remained in Jerusalem after the persecution broke out. We may recall when Philip was doing his ministry in Samaria, when he was proclaiming the gospel there, that the word got to the apostles and they sent a delegation of two. I think it was Peter and John there to go and gird up his ministry and support him. And so this is where the apostles were headquartered. This is where they were hanging out and doing ministry. They didn't scatter with the rest of the Christians, with the other Christians. They remained. And I think that this is incredible that they were present because the presence of fear was there. The standard issue Christians had fear of Saul, and so did the apostles. In fact, when Saul went and pleaded with them, for lack of better words, to become a part of the church, the authority figures were the apostles. It would have been the apostles that turned them away. But what's incredible to me is that the apostles feared Saul along with the rest of the believers. It's incredible when you consider how bold and fearless they had been in the past. What have we read so far? They preached the gospel in the Sanhedrin in the Hall of Hewn Stone before the Sanhedrin, proclaimed it boldly in a death-defying sort of way. Like, we're going to preach it, and if you kill us, we can't, you kill us. I mean, we have seen just incredible examples of courage and boldness by them, proclaiming the gospel in the uh, Hall of Hewn Stone, proclaiming the gospel at Solomon's portico before the enemies of God, fearlessly. 
And yet, they had fear. Fear of one man, no fear of the Sanhedrin? 71, 72 members who could put them death in a nanosecond? And yet they fear this one guy. Three years later. That's incredible to me. These men preached the gospel in front of the Sanhedrin, telling them to repent. Wow. But what we see here is an example of humanity and flesh and weakness. Our propensity to be fearful, to become fearful, to lack courage, to become cowards. All men, all people are subject to fear and weakness. It doesn't matter who they are. And because of this, we should not get destroyed when they fail us. We shouldn't get destroyed when they don't come through or meet our expectations. How often is it that we put all of our chips on a person? Have you ever heard someone say, my wife completes me? Really? It's not the Lord that completes you? I, I, I can't imagine living without this person. I've heard that. I've probably said that. You see, we have this great wide ability to just put so much upon people, to put our hope in them, to even put our security in them. Every election shows this. I'm putting everything I got on Romney. I'm putting everything I got on uh, everything. I'm staking my future on Obama. Wow. And yet, all men are subject to weakness and fear and tomfoolery, foolishness. And because of this, we should not get destroyed when they fail. We should recognize that all flesh is weak and it's like grass and it will perish. Our expectations of others should be seasoned with the knowledge that flesh is weak. Now, this does not mean that we do not put good, solid, godly expectations on people. That's part of discipleship. But never to the point where we think that they need to be perfect. And how often do we show, you know, our true value of someone when they do something wrong and it just takes us to a place that it shouldn't take us to. I mean, just an absolute devastation and annihilation. And it happens. Our expectations should be seasoned with the knowledge that flesh is weak. The greatest men of the Bible, the heroes of the faith, displayed fleshly weakness. Listen to these examples. Noah. Noah was a blameless, upright man who, dis who um, displayed literally extraordinary, extraordinary faith. I mean, he obeyed God. He built a boat in a land that had never seen rain out in the middle of a desert. Now, that takes some faith or sheer stupidity. I, I think it's faith. 
mean, really, it, it, it's never rain. There's water everywhere. We have oceans and things, but I, you're asking me to build a boat. Yeah, absolutely. What faith that he displayed. He believed that God was going to bring a flood, and it took him 120 years to build that thing. And the whole time he's building it, he's preaching the gospel. He's preaching for people to repent. He's probably telling people there's room for you to come aboard. That's the animal section. This is for my family over here, and there's plenty of space. And he proclaimed the gospel. It says in Hebrews. I mean, this was an extraordinary man of faith. Built an ark to preserve his family because of the impending judgment. When the water receded, he showed great faith. He constructed an altar and worshipped the Lord. There was a rainbow showing the covenant that God had made with him and humanity. I shall not flood the world again. He built an altar and worshipped God. He became a farmer. That should resonate here in the Central Valley. He specialized in wine production. That's a man after my own heart. I mean, he, you know, became a vine dresser. He planted vineyards. He, you know, he harvested grapes and made wine. It was probably good stuff. Gallo, you know, come on now. I mean, this is the land of milk and honey. Talk about some good stuff there. Problem is, one night he got really hammered on his own wine. He got blown out. He got drunk. His drunkenness led to nakedness, as it often does on college campuses, unfortunately. I mean, he literally... Oh, man. He literally got drunk. He got naked. And he passed out in his tent. And once passed out, and isn't that kind of the way it goes? You get drunk, you get naked, and then you pass out. And that happens. Unfortunately, I've had many of those experiences. The naked never happened, but I certainly passed out a few times. But once he was um, naked, he passed out, and then his son Ham came into the tent. And Noah was exposed to his own son. And we're not sure exactly what took place there. It was just that his son saw him naked or whatever, but something might have happened there because Noah's response was huge. He was infuriated. What's the point? The point is, the point is simple. The point is, is that Noah was a man of tremendous faith. A man of tremendous faith, and yet he showed extreme weakness and futility of flesh. I mean, he was an incredible guy, there's no doubt. But look at what he did. He got sauced and exposed, changing quite a few things, pronouncing curses on his own son. Point is, he was weak in his flesh, even though he was a hero of faith. We think of others like, oh, let's think of Abraham for a moment. Abraham was an amazing guy, you know, left his own land to go and... Um, pursue the promised land based on a simple word from God to go and do so. And he goes and does this extraordinary thing, cruising through all of, you know, Palestine or whatever we want to call it. And he's doing this and all by faith, he leaves his own homeland. We've talked about that in the past, I think. Incredible that he would do such a thing. Um, the same guy when 
commanded to offer his son as a sacrifice, as a test. Takes his son up to the mountain and takes the wood up there and tries to do it. God provides a sacrifice for him. You know, Abraham's righteousness or Abraham's obedience equated to righteousness. He was called righteous by God because of his obedience. And if you know the story of his life very well, if you've looked at the scripture, you'll also see that, you know, when he was before foreign kings, he lied to them about his own beautiful wife. Out of fear, he told these kings that, you know, she's my sister. Basically gave away his covenantal bride to these foreign kings. A couple times, I think it happened. I mean, as much as this man was a man of faith and a hero of faith, he showed incredible weakness and fear in, take my wife to be your own. And the incredible thing is, is that God's covenant promise to Abraham um, included his wife. You know, and so here he is offering away his wife, which means he's offering away the covenant promise of God. Point, righteous man, solid dude, loved God, faithful man, a man of extreme faith, extraordinary faith. I can't compare myself to him. And yet, futile in flesh, weak in flesh. How about David? There's just never been a kingdom like his. By far, hands down, the greatest earthly king that Israel ever had. The land prospered in ways under his leadership that were just unprecedented. I mean, prosperity, protection, security, you name it, it was there. This guy was an amazing king. He was a radical obeyer of God. I mean, he was just incredible. By far the greatest king. Wrote half the Psalms. Half. Half the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms. He wrote about half of them. David had the kind of faith that we all long to have. It was bold, um, fearless, compassionate, loving, sensitive. I mean, he wrote the Psalms. I mean, he just had this amazing faith. Bold, strong, you know, courageous sensitive, caring, loving, Meshebetheth, or whatever, how you ever pronounce his name, that old son or cousin, what was he? What was, it? What was he? Was he a, the cousin of Saul or something like that, or the nephew of Saul? That's it, Jonathan's son, his old BFF, Jonathan, my buddy. I mean, the love that he showed to that crippled kid, bringing him to his own table, I just compassionate, loving faith. Beautiful guy. I, David is just, man, I can't wait to meet him. I can't wait to meet him, right? And I'm going to say, dude, you look nothing like that statue that guy chiseled. You know what I mean? <laughs> right? You got an ab. Now, I bet he was ripped. But thinking of him, now think of this. There was a turning point in his life and kingdom where he gave in to the flesh. Did he not? He sees a woman bathing on a roof. I've never been able to figure out why we put showers on roofs back then or baths. I don't know, maybe that's where they put them. That's maybe because they think that it's up out of view of everyone else, right? You get some privacy on the roof. Well, not when you're the king and you got a big old, you know, you can look at everywhere. Oh, look, it's bath time. Time for me to go out and have a glass of wine on the balcony. Yeah, I bet. A twisted guy, flesh, right? That's where I go out and read. Yeah, I bet. I bet you go out there and read. But this took place, and he sees this woman, and he lusts after her in his heart. 
and then he calls for her. Go get her. Uh, bro, that's one of your mighty men's wife. I don't care. Go get her. Goes and gets her, has an affair. She gets pregnant, kills her husband trying to cover it up. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Like to me, like on the, in the top 10 list of sins. Taking another guy's wife, killing him over. Oh, wow, hello. That's a little different than stealing a loaf of Wonder Bread. You know what I mean? That's, that's hardcore, bro. Ooh, that's what he did. What's the point? The point is that as much as he was a man of faith, as much as he was this rock-solid, amazing guy and example, if we want to have that kind of faith that he had, all of this, he was a man of flesh, weakness, sin. Out of all of the men and women and people, and there's been some amazing women, I think of Deborah and others in there, there have been some amazing people in Scripture. There have been some extraordinary heroes of faith in the Scriptures. But out of all of them, there's only one man who came. One man who existed, who did not sin, who had no weakness. Yeah, we see some examples of maybe weakness in the flesh to some degree, but not to the point of giving into the sin and corruption and these things. But there's only been one true hero of the faith. Really. One that never let anyone down. One that never gave in to the temptation. One that never sinned. One that was ultimately perfect. And that's Jesus. He's the only one we can bank on. He's the only one that deserves our full, absolute, reckless trust and love. He is our only true security, identity, value. All those things are fixed in him, truly. And yet so often we get focused on this guy and that guy. And I can't tell you how many sermons I've heard proclaimed from churches and from pulpits where the whole emphasis is to be like just this one guy. Well, the fact is all the heroes of the faith in the scripture all point to the ultimate hero, and that's Jesus. They're just types and shadows of him. They're just foreshadows of the ultimate one who would come. As good as David's kingdom was, it's nothing like the Lord's kingdom. No. Boy, how desperately we want the Jews to realize that because they're still longing for David's kingdom to return. That kingdom pales in comparison to the Lord's kingdom. You know, we just can't put all that we have on folks. We can't put our all in all on them. And we do. But out of this entire group, this is extraordinary. Out of this entire group of, of Christians and and apostles, there was only one man present who truly emulated Jesus at this particular moment in that he had no fear, and that was Barnabas. Do you see Jesus as a man of fear? No. I see him as a man of sorrow and all of these things, but I don't see him giving in to fear. In this particular moment, there's one man who basically emulated him to some degree, in that he had no fear. And how did he display this lack of fear? Well, obviously, he had to have met with Saul, right? How else did he determine this information to present to the apostles? You see, he met with Saul. He listened to Saul's uh, testimony. 
and experiences. And he probably weighed those things out and compared them to the things that he had heard over the years of Saul being saved and doing ministry in Damascus because there's really no way they couldn't have known. Truly, truly, I say to you, the key to Barnabas's lack of fear was the fact that he was absolutely secured in Jesus Christ. You see, even if Saul had been, even if Saul was a wolf in sheep's clothing, what's the most that he could take from Barnabas? Physical freedom? That's pretty valuable. Physical life? Well, in America, that's number one. But that's pretty valuable. But isn't that truly the most that he could take? Could Saul get his hands on the things that the Lord lived and died and resurrected to secure for all eternity for Barnabas? You see, Barnabas valued the salvation of the Lord much higher than his own physical life, much higher than his own physical safety, much more than his own freedom. And he steps out in faith and takes a chance, and he meets with this guy, and he listens to his testimony. What gives such boldness and fearlessness? Being secured in Christ Jesus does. That's it. Truly, that's it. And that's what he did. And so he went and met with Saul and got this information and listened to him. And guess what? He believed him. He believed Saul's testimony. And I think one of the ways that he did was because of the change in Saul's vocabulary. The way that he spoke, the change in his speech. Okay, think of this. A few years earlier, three years earlier, what was Saul doing? We saw it in Scripture. He was what? Breathing out what? Threats against the church. What was he doing now? Breathing out what? Praises to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Is that what he was doing now? There's a difference in this guy's language. This is astonishing. Isn't that one of the first things that we notice about a new believer? The change in their speech? One of the first changes for me was that profanity like was gone. For some reason, later, as I became more secured in Christ, it started to come back. What the heck? It's coming back. I'm cussing again here and there. What the heck? Flesh, flesh, flesh. But one of the first things that you notice is that, right? There is a change in the way they talk. They talk about church all the time to the point where you're like, dude, you're talking like your church is perfect. You know? Church, 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 church. Worship, music, oh, church, church, church. They talk about the Bible. That's a good one. Keep talking about that. Talk about their ministry experiences. Oh, you don't even know we were down by the river and we baptized 10 kids in Dry Creek. They all have amoebas in their ears now, but it was amazing, right? One of them stepped in a pig's head, you know? I mean, they talk about that. They talk about the Lord. Oh, what he's done for me. It's amazing. It's amazing. Unbelievable. I'll never cease to talk about the glory of what he's done. I mean, they just talk about this stuff. They talk about, and here's another interesting thing. I work with a bunch of guys that don't love Jesus. They don't care about world events. You become a Christian, all of a sudden you start talking about things that matter. You start talking about cultural hot topics and issues and community things and stuff like that. And can you believe what happened in Uganda? You know, you just, you just, you see the world differently. So you begin to have a heart for the world and others. And, and things matter and issues matter and abortions matter and all these things. And it changes and you talk about all these things. What a difference the Lord makes in our speech through salvation. So can you see Saul and Barnabas interacting? And Barnabas is going, 
dude, this guy's legit. I remember um, when I first got saved, I went into Modesto Steel, and there was a guy in there, and I'd known him for years because I bought iron there, and um, I didn't know he was a Christian. I was in there talking, and I was praising the Lord, and he's all, dude, you got the spirit of the Lord on you. Wow, man, what happened to you? When did you get saved? He could just tell by my speech, you know? It was just a trip. I was like, how'd you know? You know, because you just have not stopped talking about Jesus since you came in here. Now, what kind of metal do you want? <laughs> Shut up, you know? I love him too, but come on, I got a job to do here. You want angle iron? You want square tubing? What do you want? I'm going to bend it over your head, you know? But there was just a difference. Do you think that Barnabas became convinced by Saul's testimony and by the fact that his language was different, his speech was different, that he was praising and not cursing anymore? Yeah, these things played into that. And so what does he do? He becomes convinced. And then what does the text say he did? He took him before who? The group. He took him over there and he said, man, this guy, he got saved on the Damascus Road. He got blinded and all that. The Lord spoke to him there. And guess what he did, guys? He went and started doing ministry and preaching Jesus and the gospel. Remember those reports we heard? Those things are true. This guy's legit. This guy is not a wolf. This guy is solid. And that's what he did. It says, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Boy, he was convinced and he took him right before them. And guess what? This is amazing. Look at that wonderful word there. And I don't know how it's expressed in your particular translation. Um, it should say declared because there's a difference there between just, you know, sharing who he was and declaring. He went and declared before them. He declared before them who this man was. There's a little bit of force in his word. Like, I'm telling you guys, this is it. This is him. He's legit. He declared it before them. He didn't sheepishly sort of, I think he's cool. We can watch him a little bit longer and see what happens, you know? No, he declared before them. And, and in a way, we, we kind of get from the Greek tense here that he kind of, in a way, he declared it in such a way where he was kind of like putting his own reputation on the line. Like, I'm telling you, based on my own trustworthiness, on my own, uh, the, the respect that you've given me, my, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, uh, my reputation, right? Barnabas was known as a, an encouraging guy. He basically declared, based upon his own level of authority and acceptance with the apostles, hey, I'm putting my neck on the line, is what he did. He put his neck on the line. That's what declared means. Amazing. So what happened? They accepted Saul at once. Based upon Barnabas' testimony, based upon his um, reputation as a godly man, based upon his character, they accepted him at once. Look at how it says so in 28. It says, so he, that's Saul we're talking about. So he, what? He went in and out among them at Jerusalem. He went in and out among them at Jerusalem. He was welcomed in 
is what he was. He was welcomed in, and he went to and fro. He came to them, and I think they were probably still meeting in the upper room because that was kind of their little headquarters in Jerusalem. He went into the upper room and hung out, and he left the upper room and hung out. Now, what was he doing when he was away from the upper room? It says, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He was out preaching the gospel throughout Jerusalem, throughout that place, that city. That's amazing. He didn't just go in there and camp out with the apostles and say, man, I'd like to pick your brain. I'd like to know what it's like to proclaim the gospel in Solomon's portico, Peter. I hope, Peter, I hope to get that venue someday. <laughs> you know, he, did, he wasn't there with any weird kind of, you know, stuff going on there. He wasn't there just sitting around in an easy chair and, you know, spending his time conversing with these guys. He was in and out. What was he? He was on a mission. You remember what he had been charged with back in Damascus. Man, this guy's going to take the gospel to Gentiles and to Hellenists and, and to Jews, right? All over. That whole region was his mission field. This guy wasted no time. He came and went, and when he was away, he was preaching the gospel. Preaching the name of the Lord. That's what he did. He was welcomed, and he immediately went to work. And, and, and I think that he could not begin to preach anywhere until he was accepted by the apostles. That's pretty obvious because they probably would have shut him down. So once he was welcomed into that group, into that church, boom, he could go freely and preach the gospel. Now, where did he preach? Where did he preach? Look at 29. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Where did he go? Here's where he went, friends. He went right into the same synagogues that Stephen preached at, where he was before. He went right into those synagogues. He went right into the very place where he disputed against Stephen. He went in there as a Stephen, which means he was disputing with who? His old comrades, his old cronies. Can you imagine these guys? What in the heck is going on here? Look at this guy. He went into those Hellenistic, it says Hellenists. He went into those Hellenistic synagogues and he what? I don't think he grabbed a pulpit and started preaching. It doesn't even say that. It says he spoke, I believe it says, and it says he disputed. He went in there and argued for the name of Christ to his own old buddies, his old cronies and colleagues is what he did. He went right in there and man, he just disputed with them. He argued for the name of Christ. At this point, he took literally, in that particular place, he took up the preaching mantle of Stephen, the one that he had killed. And he also took up the apologetics mantle of Stephen because it says what? He disputed. That's different than proclaim. Proclaim is what you do with the gospel from a pulpit. Dispute is where you get down in the trenches and you argue for the sake of Christ. Let me make an argument via the Old Testament of why Jesus is the Messiah. That's what he did with his old cronies. Can you imagine how they responded to him, what they must have been thinking? How did they respond to him? Look at the text right there. What does it say? They all repented of their sin and all of heaven rejoiced. That's what it says, huh? No, it says what? They plotted to kill him. They were seeking to kill him. At this particular moment, what had happened with Saul 
in Damascus, because remember what happened back there? He was preaching, and the Hellenists there wanted to kill him, and they were pursuing him day and night, right? They had guards at the gates. If he comes through here, blast him. Take him out. You got your gat? Yeah, I got my gat. I'll smoke that fool. They were going to take him out. The same thing is happening now in Jerusalem, the Hellenists. What does it say? Does it say seeking? It does, doesn't it? What does seeking mean? That's perpetual. That's continual. They didn't just seek to kill him, and we just tried to kill him, and that was it. It ended there. No, no. They actually continued and continued to find him, to locate him, to root him out, and to destroy him, to kill him. They wanted him to suffer the same fate as Stephen. They wanted to deal with him the same way. You see, his old cronies felt a little like this. Oh, you think that you can come? You were one of us. You think that you can come into our synagogues and dispute us about this wretched Jesus of Nazareth? Well, guess what? We'll do the same thing to you that we did to Stephen. Except this time it'll be you. That's what they figured. That's what they did. They were seeking to kill him. They were in a perpetual state of trying to find and root him out. Uh, probably similar to what happened with Saddam Hussein. You remember that whole thing? They found him down in that little trench. All except Saul, I don't think, was hiding anywhere in any trench. He didn't have any fear. Now, here's what's incredible. It's another thing that's incredible. Because the Word of God is incredible. From the time that Saul got to Jerusalem, left Damascus, and got to Jerusalem, came into Jerusalem and, and tried to, you know, become a part of the church there. From that moment to the moment he left Jerusalem was only 15 days. It says it in Galatians 1.18, I believe. He was only there for 15 days. And that particular scripture says that he only interacted with two apostles. The other ones either wouldn't have anything to do with him or they were just busy doing ministry. He interacted with, I believe, James, the brother of Jesus, who was the pastor of the Jerusalem church, and he interacted with Simon Peter. Simon Peter gave him the time of day, whatever. But he was only there for 15 days. From the moment he entered and was rejected and then accepted and then preached and then pursued to kill and then left was only 15 days. That's amazing to me. How quickly did this man stir things up? I mean, he spent nearly three years in and out of Damascus. Yes, we know that he went up north and spent some time with Jesus, but he spent a lot of time preaching the gospel down in Damascus. And it took a little bit of time for those very zealous and pious Hellenistic Jews there to really catch on to him and really to pursue him and want to kill him. But it only takes him 15 days in Jerusalem. Talk about effective gospel preaching. You know what that tells me? Because he was only there that long. It tells me that his old cronies could not stand against his arguments for the sake of the Lord just as they couldn't stand against Stephen's. Remember when we read that? They became infuriated with Stephen because they could not withstand his knowledge and wisdom and his being filled with the Holy Spirit and the power that he wielded in his words because he was preaching the very word of God. Well, Saul was doing the same thing. He wasn't there long. He couldn't be. But they were seeking to kill him. <clears throat> they wanted to put him to death. They wanted to stamp him out. They wanted to get rid of the name of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the church of Jesus. That's what they were attempting to do. 
getting rid of Saul would get rid of one little component of all of that. One little part, one little cog in the big wheel of Christianity in the way. Look at 30. This is where the church, this is where you look and you just say how much you love the church. Because the church truly, truly cares about its own. Does it not? You know, you see that in these other, these clubs and things throughout the world and stuff where there's some brotherly love for your sport mate or whatever they are, but it's nothing like the church. The church just loves its people in such a way. And it, it jacks its people up too. It's the only organization or organism in the world that shoots its wounded. Oh, that makes me so angry when I do that to others. But the church just, it just, it's because of Christ that it loves its own. And look at this love. 30. And when the brothers learned this, Adelphos in Greek, brothers in Christ, not the Philadelphia guys, the brothers in Christ, the Christian brothers, when they learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. They rescued him. They devised a plan to get him out of there. They figured in their minds, the best way to preserve and protect Saul is not to hide him here, but to get him out of here. And what does it say they did? Fifteen days later, they snatched him up and they put together a little posse or whatever you want to call it and they took him up north about 60 miles up north, a little bit north, uh, northwest, a port city, Caesarea. They took him up there to that city. And then from there, they went about another 300 miles, I believe, up to Tarsus. Long journey, two-day journey just to Caesarea from Jerusalem. 300 miles, and that's 60 miles. Think of the time it took, a couple of weeks, a week and a half or something, to go from Caesarea up to Tarsus, which happened to be his hometown. Now, what did Saul do while he was in Tarsus? Many believe he just became this tent maker and put the ministry aside and, you know, and just chilled for a little while. Not true. Not according to Galatians. Oh, is it Galatians 4? I don't know. Just so you know, I'm preaching from memory because this thing just took a dive. So I hope it's okay. Yeah, it went out before me right here and I was like, Oh, well, it's causing me to rely on the Holy Spirit, not an iPad. But anyways, where was I? Remind me. Yes. Because I don't have it in front of me, I'm not sure exactly where it is. It might be in Galatians. It might not. I think that it is. So don't hold me to it. But there is a passage that talks about what he was actually doing. And I believe it is. It says he was going in, in, I think, Cilicia and... uh, Colby, do you know it was another place? During this time that he was in Tarsus, he was doing gospel ministry in other places that were close to that, down a little southern than that. I had this tremendous MacArthur quote, but I can't remember it. But his point was that Saul was not idle. He was not idle as a tent maker in Tarsus during this period of time. If he had been idle and only making tents, then he would have what? Forsaken his calling. What was he told? Through Ananias' prophetic words. 
You're going to be a gospel preacher to Gentiles and to Jews and to Hellenists. And so don't think in your mind that, well, he just went away and hid and, and made tents, and that's all he did for three, four, five, ten years, whatever it is. No, 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 no. This man was active and busy proclaiming the gospel. In fact, I believe he planted churches in those, some of those areas, in Cilicia and, and the other one that's mentioned there in that text, I think. In, is it in, is, was it Galatians 1? Yeah. What was the text real quick? So they know? Yeah. There you go. And there were churches planted in that community. Who planted them? I think it was Saul. He wasn't just camped out and hiding and protecting himself and making tents. He was actively engaged in gospel ministry. He was busy, 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 busy. Let's look at 31. Now, what happened once he left? It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It did what? It multiplied. Look at what happened with the church here once he left. Was it because he left? Not necessarily. There were other factors involved. Let me give you a couple of them if I can remember them. Number one is the fact that he was no longer a persecutor of the church. Did he not bring that first bout of persecution that was extreme? Okay, he was a worshiper now. He wasn't a persecutor, so that played into it. Number two, he left. He wasn't stirring up the Hellenists anymore, was he? No, he was removed. He was delivered. He was rescued from their hand and taken away. And so he was no longer there to stir up the Hellenists. There's another factor. There was a governmental change. Pontius Pilate was removed from office. There was another governor put in place. And this governor, mind you, uh, Pilate was, I'm trying to remember these things, Pilate was you know, he was very accommodating of the Sanhedrin and their religion, and he was very compliant with their wishes. Obviously, we see that with what he did with Jesus. Ultimately, he did that, right? So he was a very compliant sort of, I'm not going to do anything to stir up the Jews, guys. I'm going to give them their freedom, autonomy, whatever it is. I'm going to do the best I can to keep them off my back. Once he was removed, a new guy came in, and he, homie didn't play that. Uh, he did not care about Jewish rights. He did not care about Jewish freedom. He uh, layered more restrictions and prohibitions upon them, reducing their ability to persecute the church. Not because he loved Jesus, but because he's like, look at them, they're going crazy, they're fanatical. They, we can't let them do this over their religion. They're stirring people up, they're persecuting this church. Let's stop that stuff. And so they put all these prohibitions on them, restrictions. And so guess what? The church wasn't under the thumb of the Sanhedrin as much as it had been before. Now also another thing is Herod Antipas, his... Uh, was it Antipas? Yeah, Antipas. His territory was expanded. His territory now included Jerusalem, and he was another one who was very much opposed to you know, Jewish religious freedom and these things. And so you have the combination of this governor and the combination of Antipas together, and they're putting it on the Sanhedrin. They're putting on the Judaism, and they're saying, no, you're not going to go out and do this to people and stir up trouble and cause these things. Pilate was totally fine with it. And so there's three things right there that played into it. Saul was no longer a persecutor, Saul was no longer present, and there were governmental changes. The most important ones, though, in fact, are in the text. See, those are three exterior things, are they not? You had the persecutor, you had him being removed, and you had these governmental influences. Those are external things. Those things alone cannot determine whether the church has peace, has growth, and multiplies, is what the text says that it did. Those are external things. Can they be a part of it and be a blessing to the church? Absolutely. The church can utilize those things to grow and expand and do these things. God will. 
but is physical, external peace. Um, and, you know, these things, are they contingent? I mean, does, do they, does the church have to rely on those exterior things to be able to do these things? Absolutely not. They're in the text. Look at it with me. One cool thing about not having the iPad is that I actually feel like I can come down and be with you. Up here, I'm like, ah, right? I'm locked. I'm probably missing 98% of my sermon, though, but oh well. All right, look at what it says here. Let's read it again together. 31, right? Is it up there? Perfect. I like the gap between the S and the O. All right, and the Samaria. That was me, sorry. Uh, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, what's the point there? The whole region had peace and was being built up. And then look at what it says. See the two keys there? And walking in the fear of the Lord, number one, walking in the fear of the Lord, number two, or we, we should say that that would be number four, walking in the fear of the Lord would be number four, and number five, and walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It did what? It multiplied. Let me tell you something right now. Those external things are great, but if there is no fear of the Lord in a church, it is not going to experience peace or what we would probably call unity in the church. It is not going to be built up. That means growth, okay? It's not going to experience those things if there's an absence of fear of God. And what does the Bible say about the fear of God? What is the, what is the uh, beginning of wisdom? Fear of the Lord. What you had here was you had a lot of early Christians, a bunch of early Christians, the first century church, that had this tremendous fear of the Lord. And how did they obtain that? What was their heritage? Apostolic preaching, incredible fellowship. We read these things in Acts 2, 42 to 47, didn't we not? They were devoted to the apostles' preaching. They were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to the sacraments, the breaking of bread. They were devoted to prayer. What a heritage these Christians had. Look at the things that they were devoted to. These things produced what? Great fear of God. That's what the word of God intends to do when it's preached. And what does the fear of God mean? They now had what? Wisdom. How to best apply knowledge. You had a wise church because they feared the Lord. You had a church that was doctrinally sound. You had a church that was theological. You had a church that was missional. Primarily because you had a church that had fear of the Lord. Where there's an absence of fear of the Lord you got a messy, messed up, and I'm not talking about just the little sin things, but you've got a church that's so far off line and out of whack. It, in fact, I think it's only a matter of time before Jesus removes its lampstand. If there is no healthy fear of God in the church and, and, that, and the wisdom that comes to that causes the governance of the church and we're going to govern the church according to the scripture and make biblical decisions and all this because that's how the fear of the Lord comes out, that you're actually biblical in your leadership and in your church. That's how it flushes out. If there isn't that, you're in trouble. And what do we see in the church today? Do we see a fear of God or do we see a fear of man? In the name of evangelism, the things that we've done to reach people. Jettison the gospel. Jettison the preaching of God's word. Turn to self-help. Turn to these stupid pragmatic how-tos. All in the name of reaching people for the Lord. And we're doing it. We're using every available means other than the prescribed means. 
We don't have a church that fears the Lord. I think we do here. And I think there's others out there. It's not all of them. But man, I truly believe the starting point isn't that, you know, the starting point for, for peace and, and growth and multiplication as we see here isn't just in the exteriors, the things that God uses to, to help maybe bring those things about. It's in a fear of the Lord that we fear Him. You know that you can't even understand the cross rightfully and receive the love of God, which the cross is an amazing display of, until you fear the cross? Until you fear what it represents? As much as the cross represents, shows the world a vivid display of God's love, it shows his wrath and hatred of sin. Just as much. And yet, oh, it's just all love. Oh, Oh, love, love, love. No wrath, judgment. Until you see it as a vivid display of the depravity and sin and devastating effects, the destruction of sin and God's wrath and judgment towards it, because that's what it represents, you can't receive the expression of love that's there. And so many people are doing that. Oh, it just, it just exemplifies God's love for me. What else does it exemplify? His love for me? Really? That's it? No, it's more than that, friend. When we look upon that, it should strike us with fear. That the Son of God had to be slaughtered on it because of our sin. Is that an example of God's love? Yes. Is that an example of God's justice? Yes. walked in the fear of the Lord which tells me that they knew God that they knew that he was loving that they knew that he was just that they knew that he was righteous in holiness to a level that's incomprehensible and that the only thing that keeps them from his divine death blow is the blood of Christ What else did they do? They walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In order to experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit, you're not going to ever experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit if you don't rely on Him. Comfort to me there means rely. They relied on the Holy Spirit. Not cultural influences, not pragmatic steps to ministry, not uh, creative ways uh, devised from uh, ex you know, uh, extraordinarily uh, successful businessmen to lead the church. They relied on the Holy Spirit, walking in Him daily, seeking Him moment by moment by moment. We don't want to take a step out of the power of the Holy Spirit. You know how many decisions are made behind the veil in church management rooms where they are not seeking the Holy Spirit and His guidance and leadership? What does God say to have about this? Let's seek the Spirit. Let's pray to Him. No, let's just do this because it sounds cool. 
Let's just do this because it's awesome. Let's just do this because we know it's effective because everyone else does it. That's what's happening. I've seen it. No, these first century Christians walked in the fear of the Lord and in absolute reliance on the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And what happened? They had peace, which we might call unity. They had They were built up, which means they were growing on the inside, being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Word. And look at what it says. It multiplied. The church expanded. It grew. I can't tell you how many I've listened to men come up with ways to cause the church to grow and multiply and have better unity and X plus Y equals Z and and look at what you know Starbucks does and look at their success and I'll never forget the time a contingency of pastors I won't say who they were even though I'd love to but that would be terrible they came into Big Valley and they they scoped out the place because they were wanting to do something that they were doing there. And then, and then they left there and they went to get some marketing ideas from in and out And I'm like, man, if they sell burgers there or give them away, I'm going to that church. Those are good burgers. We're getting our marching orders and ideas from in and out Is that because it says John 3.16 on the bottom of the cup? There's wisdom in that. There's our color scheme, red and white with palm trees. Family, we've got to rely on the Holy Spirit. I want to give you quickly, if you'll put them up. I'm so glad I did this. These are just, there's so many more. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to prick your memory and your mind and your heart now to rely on the Holy Spirit by just going over very quickly some of the things that he does for us. Look at these things. He dwells in us. You want to seek God? Pray to him. The Holy Spirit's in you. He's there. He's present. He manifests himself in you. Look at those verses. Look at that. The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. If you understand what's being preached today, it's because the Holy Spirit's guiding you, not because Phil is a good communicator. The Holy Spirit leads us, leads us, leads us, leads us. I'm going to go to in and out and get some ideas. The Holy Spirit leads us. Amen? The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. He makes us, transforms us into the image of Christ through God's power. Wow. I'm being made like Jesus. Some days I don't feel like it. But that's what's happening. The Holy Spirit empowers us. Where's our power? How much have you done, friends, family, in your own power? And how badly has that ended? How tired and exhausted have you gotten yourself to when you do things in your own power? One of the reasons why people fail in ministry is because they're doing is everything that they can in their own strength and power. And they get exhausted and burned out. The Holy Spirit bears witness in us that we are the children of God. How do you know you're the child of God? The testimony of the Holy Spirit that's in you. When people challenge that, ah, you're stupid, whatever. Oh, I'm a child of God. How do I know that? Holy Spirit tells me. 
Word of God tells me he confirms that. Wow. Boy, do we need that every moment. The Holy Spirit washes and renews us. Every day is like a new day in the Lord. Why? Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. You wake up, you open up your eyes. By 10 a.m., you're back to where you were. But, you know, for 9, you got some peace and you're on mission. No, it can be better than that. He washes us and renews us daily, moment by moment. He does. It's like he's at war inside of us with our flesh, but he is persevering and winning. The Holy Spirit seals us unto the day of redemption. Wow. Salvation's a done work. I'm sealed. Amazing. The Holy Spirit reveals the deep things of God to us. In some churches, you listen to the preaching, you think, man, God's shallow. No, he isn't. The Holy Spirit strengthens our spirits. We have a spirit. He strengthens our spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to obey the truth. Oh, whoa. You mean when I'm disobeying and being a dummy and because I'm not relying on the Spirit and following the Spirit's lead? Yeah, that's pretty much why. That's why you see things happen. He is the cause of it. He enables us to obey the truth. Holy Spirit comforts us. We saw it in our text. He is our comforter. It ain't Mary. Catholics got that one way wrong. In fact, they've assigned all the beautiful titles and names and duties and offices of the Holy Spirit to her. And no wonder that church is such a mess. Get back to the word. Get to it for the first time. He comforts us. Friends, if we are to be the church that God has called us to be, we must do as the first century church did in that we must devote ourselves to the word of God, to the fellowship, to the sacraments, to prayer, to the fear of the Lord into dependence, moment-by-moment moment, dependence, reliance on the Holy Spirit who is here and who is in our midst. This was an outstanding, amazing church, the first century church. Our goal is to become like Jesus, not like the first century church, but boy, have they set an example for us. How do we get there? How does reformation come? It comes through doing those things that I just told you about. And it's going to really truly begin with the fear of the Lord. And dependence on the Holy Spirit. Not on man and pragmatism or anything else. That's my most earnest and sincere desire for our fellowship, for our church. That we would fear the Lord, be led by the Holy Spirit, devoted to the things that God has prescribed in his word and that we would experience what was up there before. Peace, unity, growth, we're being changed, and multiplication. That's how it works. God's made it so clear. Isn't he gracious? He didn't leave it out there in some flux and void. Figure it out. I figured it out for you, and I put it in my word for you. Rely on me. Do these things, and I'll bless you, and I'll keep you, and I'll multiply all for my glory and namesake. Amen.
Isn't that what we're longing for?